Trade Talks, bringing you the best of the buy side. Hello and welcome back to another Trade Talks podcast. I'm Kai Scahill, Multimedia Editor at The Trade. I'm joined by Annabelle Smith, our Senior Reporter, and we've got Laurie McCautry, who is our Managing Editor. And today is a special podcast because it's Valentine's Day. Now, you either love it or hate it, depending on if you're single or not. But uh, yeah, we've got a very special Valentine's Day show for you. Isn't that right, Laurie? Yes, we do. We've got a really interesting show for everyone today. We've got an interview with Claire Flynn Levy, who is a very experienced fund manager. Uh, she was most recently at Deutsche Asset Management, but since then she has founded a company called Essentia Analytics, which really looks at the behavior of active investors and works with them very closely to help them improve their investment choices and their investment techniques. And so I sat down with her to discuss how you can avoid falling in love with stocks. So I know that this is Valentine's Day, but really we've got a kind of anti-Valentine's edition because we're talking about how you can avoid falling in love. Um, but it's a really, it's a super interesting topic. And I think that there's a, there's lots to say about it. But um, Annie, what are your thoughts on Valentine's Day? Oh, yeah, yeah, I like, I like Valentine's Day. Um, my partner and I usually do something quieter at home. I mean, everything seems to be more expensive on Valentine's Day, I find. Like the sort of, Stick a love heart and everything, and it, it hikes up all the prices, which is a bit pessimistic of me. Yeah, but. absolutely. Talk, talk about generating profits. These guys exactly. have got the right I mean, idea. A stat I've got, fun fact, guys. Guess how much money Americans spent on Valentine's Day gifts in 2019? I don't know. Tell us. $20 billion. Well, I've, uh, I, I've got a stat for you, Annie. Guess how much American households spent on Valentine's Day gifts for their pets? No, no, don't. How much? <laughs> $751.3 million. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so there's a lot of single sad cat ladies and cat people and cat guys yeah i mean I'm, I'm genuinely fairly certain that there are cats out there that, that are getting better valentine's day gifts than i am i'm wondering if uh, those, oh these stats that i've found in this good housekeeping article i mean do you want do you think they accommodate for the the stock prices that you know we're going to be talking about in this podcast and the, the falling in love stock fees incurred <laughs> i don't know do you know i mean to be honest like hallmark is listed it's not been doing that well, but it's up 7.52% this year. You would think that it would have a big jump around Valentine's Day, but looking at the chart, actually, it doesn't. It's uh, it's actually been going down the past couple of weeks, but maybe we'll see a little bit of a a little bit of a hop next week after the figures come through. <laughs> yeah. I love how all of these stats are from uh from American American statistics. You know, us Brits, us cold-hearted Brits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just like you know, a, a kebab and a can of iron brew. <laughs> That's romance right there. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to be expecting a little bit more than that on Monday, I think. So while we're speaking about all this romance, let's move on to our interview with Claire Flynn Levy. Uh, we've got a right good interview here. It's all about loving stocks. So let's get right into it. In person, online and on the air. It's time for the Trade Talks interview. Hi, 
everyone. It's great to have you with us. Today, in a very special Valentine's Day edition, I am delighted to welcome Claire Flynn-Levy, an ex-fund manager at Deutsche Asset Management, who is now CEO of Essentia Analytics, which provides behavioral analytics and performance consulting services for active investors. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So, Claire, thank you for being here with us. To start things off, would you like to just give us a bit of background about yourself? What's your story? How did you end up with Essentia? Sure. Well, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I am a former tech fund manager who went native. <laughs> I, I ended up moving into technology itself to create software tools for other fund managers. And you know, I, I'm American, but I spent the bulk of my career in London, where I was a fund manager at Morgan Grenfell Asset Management in the late 90s. And then I was a hedge fund manager for my own firm, which was called the Avocet Capital Management in the early 2000s. And ultimately, I realized that I had no actual visibility on exactly what I was doing well and poorly as an investment decision maker. And I decided that in the absence of that, this whole thing was not a good use of my energy, that I couldn't have a competitive advantage, actually. Um, and that's really why I founded Essentia Analytics, which is a service along the lines of sports analytics and coaching for equity fund managers. So we give managers the, the visibility into what's working and what isn't that I just didn't have. But that behavioral analytics, that sort of analytics side of things is fascinating. And obviously today it's Valentine's Day. We want to talk about the dangers of falling in love with stocks. I know that you've got a lot to say on this. Essentia's done some research about it. It's an appropriate topic for the day. Romance is in the air. So if we can just kind of kick things off with an easy question, I know you've got some data on this. What are the hidden costs of falling in love with stocks and why do people do it? You know, it's funny, like falling in love in general can be an expensive endeavor, right? Uh, and a relationship that a fund manager has with a stock is, you know, it is a relationship. When it comes to falling in love with stocks, it usually happens when a fund manager has been making good money out of a given stock in the portfolio and over an extended period of time. And they've told that story to their investors. They've talked about the, you know, the, the stock at length over and over again with anybody who will listen to them. And the problem is that when we fall in love with a stock this way, and I say we because all investors are susceptible to this, uh, we just don't notice the cracks when they start to form, kind of like with other relationships, maybe. Uh, you know, it's easy to get caught out when things turn nasty because we've been in denial and we've just not not seen it coming in the way that we might have done if we weren't so in love. Um, so it, it's not uncommon for uh, an investor who is in love with a stock, you know, who is, has had great success with the stock to ultimately give back all the returns that he or she made in that stock and then some. So it ends up actually being a loser, um, which is both expensive and embarrassing. So what are the drivers behind this behavior? Why do investors allow themselves to be biased in this way? It's, we're all hardwired with biases, right? If you've, if you've read anything about behavioral finance, for example, uh, then you may be familiar with the different biases that are well-known in the academic literature. Um, and one of them is called the endowment effect. And the endowment effect is um, the extent to which we overvalue something solely by the virtue of our own ownership of it. So the, the famous experiment that, 
that sort of defined it was to do with coffee mugs. One group of people is given a, a coffee mug and the other group isn't. And then they're asked, the people who have one, how much would you be willing to sell this for? And the people who didn't have one, how much would you be willing to buy this for? The people who owned it thought it was worth more than the people who didn't have one. The fact that we hold on for too long, it's that love <laughs> that comes with ownership. It, it's a perfect example of the endowment effect and people generally don't know they're doing it. Do we have any data on the on the actual sort of cost on the cost that it, you know the the fund managers are seeing, you know any any research in that area? Yeah, well so uh Essentia did a research study that um is all around what we call alpha decay, but we looked at 43 portfolio managers, equity portfolio managers um over 14 years, so over 9,000 individual stocks that they held in their portfolios. And what we found overall, what we were looking for was, was how does alpha accumulate in a given stock over its life in the portfolio? You know, do people make all the money at the beginning and then not so much at the end, or do they make it steadily throughout the life of the, the stock in the portfolio? What does it look like? Um, and what we found was that there, there are some people whose overarching sort of pattern is to consistently generate alpha throughout the life of the stocks in their portfolios. That's the holy grail. And, you know, that's what we all would like to be. Um, and we call them the linear accumulators. Um, but there were far more people that, uh, you know, were not looking at that sort of pattern. Um, and we divided those into, we found sort of three other types. One is the hopeless romantic. So if the linear accumulator is the romance that goes on forever until you both die, <laughs> maybe, uh, the hopeless romantic is one where there's a big burst of, of alpha generation in the case of stocks, uh, but like good things happen very much at the beginning. And then there's a long period of underperformance after that until you just give up. Um, then we had a pattern that we called the coaster. So that's one where they generate good alpha in the, the first half of the life of the position in the portfolio. And then it just kind of like peters out after that. It doesn't go down, you know, it doesn't destroy value, but it's taking up space in the portfolio that could be used more efficiently towards some you know, position that's earlier in its, in its life. Um, and then the last one was called the round tripper. And that is uh, what we were talking about before, the idea that you make a lot of money and then you give it all up and then some. Um, and that's, that's from a fund manager's point of view, that's the worst, you know, and yet when we looked at it across all of them, that was the overarching pattern. And yet when we look at it, we realized that the, the average portfolio manager there was generating over 120 basis points of alpha per annum at the portfolio level before they gave that all back. Um, so that's more than enough to offset fees. You know, if you're thinking about why do managers, you know, why are they said to not outperform net of fees? Well, you know, on average, you're talking about like 75 basis points of fees. So if you could make an extra 120 basis points um, and not give it all back, that's actually worth a lot. And what we found is that you can actually do that. It's about reminding yourself at the right moment that now's the time to ask for the check or, you know, call, call it a day or not necessarily sell, but like there's a, there's a point in the life of your positions and it's unique to you as a fund manager um, where it's a good time to ask some additional questions and put the position through a sort of more rigorous workout just to make sure that you're still happy to be there 
maybe you want to buy more in the end of that, or maybe you want to sell it. But the point is, you don't even have to get the exact top in order to save that 120 basis points. It was actually only the sort of 75% of what uh, what they were actually earning um, that that uh, was required. So you have a, a good six months, we found, to make that decision. Right. So it's about identifying where you are and then asking the right questions. I think the, the point that you made about fees and, and outperforming those fees is really interesting. Obviously, at the moment, we're seeing a big boom in popularity for passive investing, um, you know, ETFs, exchange traded products, um, passive funds. So we're seeing a lot of pressure on the active managers to outperform and to justify their fees. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Essentia focuses on behavioral analytics. How can the how can this support active investors? Um, you know, why is it important for them and how can it help them avoid these, you know, these pitfalls? Well, you know, in the absence of this sort of analysis, if you think about it, a portfolio manager is really flying blind. You know, the tradition is to look at performance as a measure of skill. Did this manager perform well in the last three years? Yes. Okay, let's give him more money. Uh, It says in the fine print on every single one of these investment ads, past performance is not predictive of future. So what are we doing? And if you're a fund manager, the performance attribution software that we all sort of grew up with and that is still the, the sort of main tool that gets used, what it's doing is it's taking the performance and then it's working backwards to try and figure out how that happened. You know, what was it because of the stocks the person picked or the sector exposures that he or she had or the country exposures? And that's interesting and useful for reporting, you know, for telling stories to investors about here's what happened. It's not very useful for helping a fund manager understand what could they be doing differently to get a better result going forward. And that was a question that I was seeking to answer when I started this company. That's what I wanted. Somebody just look at what I'm doing and tell me, what am I doing that's helping and what am I doing that's hurting? And uh, it's very, you know, as I mentioned before, it's very similar to sports analytics in that way. You know, you can do a bunch of analysis at the sort of game level, in this case, at the the stock idea level, you know, which, what do the winning games have in common? What do the losing games have in common? That's, you know, interesting. But then you can zoom in on every single thing that the player does on the field. You know, in in this case, it's every single type of decision that the manager is making, whether those are entry and exit timing decisions or decisions about how big to be or how quickly to get up to size. There's like a certain set of decisions that all fund managers are making all the time. And when you have the data you can zoom in and, and identify the patterns that each manager has uh, around how they make those decisions and the, the success rate of those decisions. And then you can show that back to them and hold up a mirror and say, look, that's you in real life doing this. They just never have had that level of visibility before. But once you do, it's very illuminating. And sometimes what it does is just confirm hunches that you've always had. But at least in in confirming it with actual data evidence, you can then do something about it. Whereas when it's a hunch, you're always like a little bit afraid to do something about that. It's never a sort of, uh, you know, uh, condemnation of a particular type of decision or, or, you know, a computer telling them they're doing something wrong. What it is, is a a conversation with somebody, we call them insight partners, but somebody who's been a portfolio manager who's using this data to show you and have a, you know, like, this is a discussion. Let's, let's 
pick it apart and figure it out. What can we do with this information to make your investment process better? That's fascinating. And I guess, you know, given all of these conversations that you have with all of these active asset managers, I think the uh, our final question, you know, we've zoomed in a little bit on the data, on the research, on the individual behaviors, on the technology. Um, perhaps let's pull out a little bit just to finish off. Um, in these conversations that you're having with active investors, what are they what are the challenges that they're seeing? What are the opportunities that they're looking out for? What are the what are the key trends for 2022, um, you know, that they're looking at? And how can they use these analytics to adjust their behavior in order to take advantage of them? Well, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of portfolio managers um, all the time. And it's been interesting over the COVID period to, you know, see what, what's happened with them and what if they what have they liked and not liked about working from home. I can see they've all missed corporate access. You know, they're going to all be traveling again soon if they're not already, um, because they they do find that 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 is a good use of time and very uh, fruitful for them. I think some of them are finding consolidation and reorgs distracting. You know, this is going on in this industry and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So it's very important to be able to keep your head in the game, you know, and not be focused on the politics and, and, you know, whether you're going to get fired. Um, You can't do both. You can't focus on that and perform well and make good decisions in the market. So uh, one of them is your job and uh, the other one has to be not. But the other thing is that market volatility, which, you know, has picked up lately, it creates emotional reactions in all humans, um, all humans with normal emotional function, <laughs> even fund managers, and even the most senior, you know, seasoned fund managers have emotional reactions to volatility. But there's a difference between having an emotion, you know, feeling an emotion and acting on it, right? And the key for all fund managers, I think, is to not act on these emotions, to, to listen to them as information but to build into their investment process a set of objective questions to ask themselves, you know, like we, we just talked about when you fall in love, you get to a certain point in the, in the relationship, you ask yourself these questions, even if it seems like a ridiculous thing to do because you're so in love, but you do it anyway because they're objective and you decide you were going to do that before the love happened. Same with market volatility. You don't define the questions in the moment that it's volatile, but if you have a set of questions that you're, asking yourself before you make any decision, um, that keeps you on the straight and narrow with your investment process. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like I want to go away and uh, and pick a bunch of stocks and see how I do. But obviously, that's uh, that's not my job. But thank you so much for speaking to us, Claire. It's been it's been really interesting learning a bit more about it. And um and obviously, you know, we don't necessarily want to give the the lesson that on Valentine's Day you shouldn't fall in love. But I think it's clear <laughs> that when it comes to stock picking, that's the uh, that's the message that we're going with. Great! It was a pleasure to be here. So yeah, that was a a great interview with Claire Lynn Levy. Some interesting thoughts there on loving stocks. Final thoughts before we go, guys. Do you love or hate Valentine's Day? Well, I I have to admit, I love it. I'm a secret romantic. But guys, what do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm less uh, February 14th and more March 14th. Um, If you know, you know, uh, but I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) And uh, and uh, I, I don't think we can talk about this live on air, but if you don't know, Google it. <laughs> well, guys, that was a very special romantic 
Trade Talks podcasts, and we look forward to seeing you guys all on the next one. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Trade Talks podcast, bringing you the best of the buy side.